Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second part of Signum University's uh, seminar on Sigurd and Gudrun by uh, Carl Edlund Anderson. Uh, for those of you who missed the first part, uh, Dr. Anderson gave us a, a very nice overview of the medieval background of the source text that Tolkien would have um, looked at and known, and sort of a, uh, a, a multifaceted plot summary of the legend in all of its all of its many forms. Um, and uh, today we're going to carry on and look at the uh, some of the some of the uh, ways that Tolkien interacted with and uh, and reused and reworked the the earlier parts of the legend so um with that i think i'll turn it over to carl okay um <clears throat> hello everyone i hope you can uh hear me and see see me um oh and i think nelson is bringing up some of our exciting slides perhaps um that will be that will be entertaining us. So welcome everyone to the uh, second seminar in this series of three seminars on J.R. Tolkien's The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, uh, a book published in 2009, but containing two narrative poems in modern English that retell stories from the medieval Volsungniblung cycle of legends. Uh, I'm coming to you live today from the quite misty mountains of the Andes in Colombia, South America. Um, from where I sit, it looks as good a haunt for trolls and giants as any. Um, let's see. Good. Oh, I see some people at least can hear and see me. That's good news. Um, Nelson, do you think you can perhaps get us uh, the first of the slides up? We had some trouble with the slides, running the slides from my side of the... Uh, the software last time. There we go. Ah, perfect. And there's the overview. Uh, yeah, we can go on to um, to to slide two. Actually, there with the overview of the legends of Sigurd and Gudrun. That's just the content of uh, the books there to orient anybody who um, hasn't uh, hasn't got the book in front of them. So, in any case, as Nelson was saying in our first um, of first session in this seminar on the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, we talked about the medieval sources on which Tolkien's poems are based, and we started to look at the story itself, particularly the way in which Tolkien began his retelling of the legends quite differently from any of his medieval sources, or even his 19th century predecessors who also told, retold these legends like William Morris or Richard Wagner. Um, Tolkien explicitly gives his t poetic retellings a very cosmic scope by beginning his story with a version of the creation of the world from uh, Norse mythology. Uh, perhaps we can slip over to the second slide just to, uh, uh, sorry, the third slide, I guess. Um, so there's um, a lovely picture of Volusbao, the Norse poem on which uh, Tolkien's beginning was based. Um, However, in his new beginning to the Volsung legends, he introduces a prophecy of his own invention. There's a kind of prophecy in the original about the overall shape of the history of the Norse universe, but Tolkien's is about how the world, the Norse universe, can be saved from its otherwise inevitable destruction if a hero who fulfills all the right conditions um, is available to fight with the Midgard serpent, the dragon who, um, encircles the world. 
um, in the final battle between the gods and their monstrous foes. Now, this is a departure from authentic Norse mythology, as far as we know, but it does draw on some authentic aspects of that mythology. Um, perhaps you can bump us ahead to the next slide, Nelson, which should show uh, some wood carvings uh, with Sigurd. Um, in any case, um, it seems like, there we go, um, it seems like um, Tolkien's version of these legends sets up the dragon-slaying hero of the originals, Sigurd, as a redeemer and even a somewhat Christ-like or Christ-implying, Christ-recalling kind of figure. Um, medieval Scandinavian Christianity did admit Sigurd into its iconography, perhaps as a sort of comparison with St. Michael, a more formally recognized Christian dragon slayer, but the conception of Sigurd as a divinely descended, dying but deathless savior of the world is pretty particularly Tolkien's conception. It seems related to the extensive efforts he made in his own earlier world-building exercises with early versions of Middle-earth to kind of try to reconcile pagan Norse and Christian mythology, although that's something he later stepped back from. Um, but in any case, there's a great deal of connection running back and forth between Tolkien's more original creative work, such as The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, um, and his retellings here of the medieval Volsung Nibling legends published in The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun. But having talked about the way Tolkien opened his versions of these legends in our previous seminar session, and the cosmic spin in that his new opening put on his retelling, um, I want to now return to see how things continue to play out in, um, at least today, the earlier parts of his legends. Um, now, as we mentioned in the um, in the first session of this webinar series, the Scandinavian version of the Volsung Nibelung cycle had a lot more detail than the German or the continental version. And Tolkien was basically following the Scandinavian versions of the medieval legends when he wrote his poems, and he made extensive use of this additional Scandinavian material, uh, much of which appears at the start of the cycle's narratives as backstory for the hero, Sigurd, and that's what we'll largely be looking at and working through and talking about today. Um, the principal source for most of this background material is the 13th century prose text Volsunga Saga. Um, it is presumed that the saga author based his work on earlier poems that have not survived, and that's a pretty good presumption, but in the end we are, as Tolkien was, heavily dependent on what Volsunga Saga says about all this. Um, besides information on Sigurd's family and their adventures, which we will come to in a bit, Volsunga Saga and then also the Prose Edda both include a mythological account of the origins of the treasure that the hero Sigurd eventually wins by slaying the dragon Fovnir. Um, Volsunga Saga tells the treasure origin story in a later flashback just before Sigurd goes to slay the dragon, but the prose Edda presents it before it summarizes the rest of the legends. And Tolkien actually does both. He later summarizes the treasure origin in flashback, but first presents it here as a kind of second beginning after having recounted the creation of the world. Um, rather a, a second breakfast, um, if you will. But we need to remember that the prophecy, which Tolkien described with the creation story, has set up the conditions by which the world can be saved from destruction. And so throughout the rest of the first of Tolkien's two poems, the first of his poems is the one focusing on the hero Sigurd, there is a sense that the god Odin is working to ensure the conditions of the prophecy are fulfilled 
at whatever cost to anyone and everything. Um, so to get things going again, um, next slide, please, Nelson. So retro to say that. Ah, thank you. Hope everybody can see that. I can. Um, so to get things going again, it seems like um, in this second beginning, the gods Odin, Loki, and Hernir uh, were out walking the earth, like Cain in Kung Fu. Um, Odin and Loki are reasonably familiar to us from other myths, but we don't really know very much about Hernir. Um, anyway, as the three gods were walking beside a river, Loki threw a stone and killed an otter. Rather capricious, or, or was it? Um, Loki is clever and subtle, and he's sometimes more than just mischievous. He's even an outright enemy of the gods on occasions. Is he consciously looking ahead and trying to unleash doom upon the world? Who knows? Still, the gods skin the otter and travel on to seek lodging for the night. They come to the house of one Hredmar, uh, who recognized the otter skin as, unfortunately, having belonged to his son, Otter, who whose name, of course, in Old Norse means otter, and who had apparently been in the habit of changing shape into an otter and swimming in the river. It's not really quite clear what kind of being Hredmar is. A giant, a dwarf, a human, his offspring are shape changers. Tolkien calls him a demon in his account, though demons as such are not a very Norse concept. In any case, Hredmar must have possessed potent magic power since he is able to force the three gods to pay compensation for the death of his son. Hredmar insists they completely cover the otter skin in gold before they can go free. Well, Loki caused this trouble, Loki must fix it. In the prose Edda and Tolkien's poems, Loki goes first to see the sea goddess, uh, Ron, to borrow her nets, though Volsunga Saga admits this step. But all sources and Tolkien agree that Loki goes back to the river where Uther was slain and catches a dwarf named Anvari, who is himself in the habit of changing shape into a pike and swimming there in the river. Basically, if you are a shape-changing weir creature, you should probably get out of town if you see Loki. Now, Anvari owns a great treasure. Um, Oh, I just see a question coming in. Is the word vulva related to sight or prophecy or mysterious old woman? Or um, I'm actually blanking on the deeper et etymology of vulva, but vulva is the word for um, prophetess, basically. We did, uh, discussed this briefly at the last time. It ends up getting combined with the word for count in modern Icelandic to create the modern Icelandic word for computer, the tolva, or uh, counting prophetess, I assume. It's not tremendously philological creation, um, but it is kind of fun. But yes, vulva, the vulvaspau is this, the speech, the saying, the prophecy of the prophetess, prophetess the seeress. Um, the, uh, Tolkien actually just calls her a seer in his version. Oh yeah, Kendra says it's connected to the words for rod or staff, at least in one account, voler, uh, um, and we'll actually come back to that word um, a bit later on. But in any case, um, Anvari owns a great treasure, as we were saying, but Loki forces him to relinquish it in exchange for his life, because uh, they need the treasure to cover the otter skin. Um, Anvari attempts to hold on to a particular ring, but Loki spots it and demands that as well. Now, only in the prose Edda is there any hint of special power about this ring, as in that account, Anvari begs Loki to let him keep it, um, only the ring at least, since the ring has the power to let him eventually rebuild his treasure hoard. 
Um, otherwise, in the medieval Volsung Nibelung legends that we know, any rings really only serve as tokens that eventually allow Sigurd's betrayal of Brynhild to be revealed by Gudrun. Tolkien does pretty much nothing with Anvari's ring in his poetic versions of the Volsung Nibelung legends, written in the early 1930s, that the medieval legends themselves do not do. And even when Bilbo found a magic ring in the first edition, first edition, I emphasize, of The Hobbit, um, as published in 1937, there was no conception there that Bilbo's ring had any world-ruling powers. It just made you invisible, nothing more, really, and it gives little Bilbo, um, an entirely ordinary sort of person thrust into a heroically legendary world, a little bit more of an edge to help him through the story. In contrast, Anvari's ring here might, but only might, help you get wealthy, um, and it certainly doesn't make you invisible. So the only connection between Anvari's ring and Bilbo's ring, and indeed Frodo's ring, which is really something rather different in nature than the ring that originally appeared in The Hobbit, um, the only connection is indeed that they are all rings. Um, as we now know, the conception of Bilbo's then Frodo's ring as an ancient artifact of great power created by a semi-divine or demonic even being in order to rule the world, more or less, was introduced to Tolkien's storytelling only as he wrestled with the need to produce a sequel to The Hobbit. The first person who retold Volsung Nibelung legends in such a way to give center stage to a magically charged version of Anvari's ring, though Anvari himself disappeared in this account, was Richard Wagner in the 19th century. Wagner's ring is created by the dwarf Alberich to rule the world, more or less, um, though it is hinted that it also enslaves its owner. Um, and at the end, it goes back to the Rhine maidens from whom its gold was seized. Tolkien, of course, knew how Wagner had transformed the Volsung Nibelung story in this way, and I do not think he approved of it, but he did do some quite similar things himself. Um, Tolkien's ring in The Lord of the Rings, though not, of course, originally in The Hobbit, also gives world-dominating powers, certainly enslaves its wielder, and then goes back to the fires of its forging at its end. But, of course, and Tom Shippey has pointed this out, um, Wagner told his story by heavily transforming the Volsung Nibelung legends to an extent that although they remain recognizably derived from the medieval sources, they are really something quite different. They're Wagner's own story, um, but still, still recognizably it's clear where he was, what he was working with. Um, but in exa for example, in a, a move that probably horrifies most philological scholars of the legends, Wagner entirely eliminates the scene of the quarrel of the queens, uh, which was actually pretty much one of the main elements about which all of the medieval versions of the legends revolved and about which all of them disagreed. And Tolkien probably couldn't bring himself to like a version of the legend, such as Wagner's, that had removed um, its most central philological point of study. Um, Tom Shippey has made this and a number of other interesting points suggesting how Tolkien might have been responding to Wagner in a paper of his called The Problem of the Rings, Tolkien and Wagner, and I don't want to just rehearse Tom's points here, so do find and read the paper if you can. But I will quote Tom's very sensible, I think, observation from this paper that, and here I quote, um, if Tolkien did take anything from Wagner, it was perhaps no more than the idea that something could be done with the idea of the Ring of Power. 
um, something more and more laden with significance than anything in an ancient source, anything in an ancient source, but at the same time, and very definitely not what Wagner had done with it. Now, I would like to go a little farther than this and say that what Tolkien did with the idea of the Ring of Power was indeed give it a cosmic significance as Wagner had, but in order to ensure that what he did was very definitely not what Wagner had done with it, um, for example, doing irreparable violence to the central element of the medieval legends, was to take the idea out of those legends entirely. The world ruling ring that could end up ruling its owner did not, I think Tolkien eventually decided, have a very good place in the Volswing Nibling story. Such a ring could perhaps be connected with ideas of salvation and redemption, um, and with a hero who might strive, but ultimately as the fallible mortal indeed fail um, at personally realizing such ideas. But that kind of hero would have to be something quite different from the serpent-slaying Sigurd the Superman of Tolkien's own reworking of the Volsung Nibling legends. Still, in the early 1930s, when he was indeed reworking them, though The Hobbit was drafted or being drafted, the whole concept of the world-ruling ring of power and the very non-Volsung-type hero who tried to save the world by destroying that ring of power, that all still lay very much in Tolkien's future. Um, let me just make, take a quick peek to see if any fun uh, questions are coming along. Da, da, da. Anvari's ring is said to be able to help Anvari rebuild his treasure. It seems to sound similar to the effect of the seven rings um, given to the dwarves in Lord of the Rings. Could this inspire Tolkien? Yeah, I think that's, that's possible. Um, Anvari is a dwarf. His ring helps him rebuild his treasure. I think that if not explicitly, must have at least been implicitly in Tolkien's uh, mind when he was writing about the, the role that the Dwarven Rings um, in Middle-earth could have in helping the Dwarves maintain or rebuild their treasure. I think that's, that's probably a pretty good point there. And returning to the myth of Anvari's ring um, in the poems, uh, Anvari himself is, as you can imagine, understandably upset that his treasure, including his ring, magic or not, has been seized by Loki. So he thus curses the ring and in, in Volsunga saga, in fact, the whole treasure to be the death of whoever possesses it. Um, Tolkien's version of this curse in his particular reworking of the legend, keeping the cosmic scale in mind, includes a specific clause aimed at the, quote, end untimely of Odin's hope. Um, that is that Sigurd should die before his time and so perhaps ruining Odin's plans. So again, the idea of the cursed ring and its powers is very, very different here in Tolkien's reworking of the Volsung legends than it was in either Wagner's reworking or in Tolkien's later fiction. Anyway, um, here in Tolkien's Volsung poems and indeed in the medieval versions, Loki is not too bothered by this curse himself. He won't be keeping the gold for long. He brings the treasure back to Freydmars and the gods cover the otter skin. Um, remarkably, Tolkien's tale, which is very condensed and elusive, um, omits a particular detail from the medieval legends here, a detail that we know from his letters that Tolkien particularly loved. In the medieval sources, Freydmar notices a single whisker from the otter skin that remained uncovered by the gold, and he demands the gold ring that Loki had prized away from Anvari, which apparently Loki was actually trying to hold back a little bit. Um, he demands that ring to cover the whisker. This particular episode gets a 
very oblique reference in Tolkien's original poem, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, first published in 1934, and so presumably also composed around the time that Tolkien was working on the poems of the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun. There, in his poem, Tom Bombadil is engaged in verbal altercation with an otter, um, a real one, presumably, apart from that it talks, um, and he threatens it with the following words. Um, I'll give your otter fell, your otter skin that is, to Barrowites. They'll taw you, they'll, they'll flay you, they'll tan your hide. Um, then smother you in gold rings. Your mother, if she saw you, she'd never know her son unless twas by a whisker. Nay, don't tease old Tom until you be far brisker. Now, as a threat, this really doesn't make a great deal of sense in the context of Tom Bombadil insofar as things make sense in the context of Tom Bombadil. Um, it's pretty clearly included in the poem, I think just because Tolkien wanted to make a geeky reference to the Volsung Nibelung legends. Perhaps the somewhat folkloric feel of the Whisker and the Ring episode led him to leave it out uh, of his own epic poems, though. Anyway, with the treasure delivered to Freythamar, um, Loki reveals that it is cursed and can be expected to bring death and doom to a lot of people. Tolkien pointedly has Loki note that this curse would also fall on Odin's hope, that is, Sigurd. But perhaps Odin knows more than Loki. Odin rejoins that his chosen redeemer does not end with mortal life, but will await his ultimate task in Valhall, um, Valhalla. Odin has a long game in mind. Perhaps even Loki's plans for mischief are really just another part of Odin's design. Um, this reminds us perhaps a little bit of, of um, the version of Tolkien's creation of the world story in the Silmarillion, um, where everything Melkor um, tries to do, Morgoth tries to do, really is just part of Eri's plan. Um, um, Odin here is perhaps a little bit more like Manwe than Eru, of course, but um, in any case, Hraithmar isn't interested in all the business about the curse anyway, though perhaps he should be. He will eventually be murdered by his son Favnir, um, quite soon probably, uh, and Favnir takes the trash treasure and then transforms into a dragon to guard it. But Tolkien's going to wait until a bit later to tell us about all that. Just by pause and make sure I'm seeing... Okay, for the question chat. Um, Nelson, could you pass us along to the next slide, please? Excellent, wonderful. Um, the prequel saga. Um, so having now told us about two beginnings, the beginning of the world with its ultimate need for salvation, and then the origins of the cursed treasure that the world's savior will win, Tolkien finally turns to the savior's own origin story, or at least um, the story about the family from which the savior um, will come. A third breakfast now, if you will. Um, so here, at this point, Tolkien also starts to join his poem's plot with basically that of Volsunga saga, and he generally follows that saga's outline, although admitting a number of details and digressions from the saga where he disagreed with them. He generally follows that saga's outline for a lot of the rest of his poems. Um, Volsunga saga itself begins with an extensive prequel section um, that deals with the doings of several generations of uh, its hero Sigurd's immediate ancestors. And there is a lot of good juicy stuff in here. There are conflicts and feuds and incest and other relationship issues, infanticide, lycanthropy, various interventions by the god Odin. Honestly, there's more going on here than you get um, in most other complete sagas or legends. Um, there's so much, in fact, that we're going to inevitably have to skip past 
quite a lot of things that might otherwise merit longer conversation, um, such as the, uh, the nature of our task. Um, but I do want to start by talking a bit about our hero's descent from the god Odin. You might think of mythologically oriented detail like this to be very ancient and traditional, though it's actually a little bit difficult to be sure. Um, plenty of medieval Norse sources mention human kings descended from Odin, though it's hard to be sure how common such claims really were in actual pre-Christian times. Um, Odin is very prominent in our medieval sources, but it's not clear he was always so prominent as a deity in earlier genuinely pagan periods. There's some possibility that Odin gained prominence during the Viking Age and that claims of descent from him were partially encouraged by awareness of Anglo-Saxon traditions in England, where we know that English kings were claiming descent from Woden, the English equivalent of Odin during the Viking Age itself, even though they were um, Christian. Um, Sigurd's descent from Odin seems to have been very Norse. Also, there's nothing similar to that preserved in the continental tradition. But Tolkien certainly thought that it was important, at least for his version of the story, a mortal hero of divine descent, and descent from Odin is one of the conditions for the redeemer hero who can prevent the end of the world in Tolkien's retelling of the legends. Um, of the descendants of Odin who figure in the legends, Volsunga Saga, as usual, offers more detail, though Tolkien skipped straight to Odin's grandson, Rerir, um, and but only really mentions him briefly before getting on to Rerir's son, Volsung, the partially eponymous titular character of Volsunga Saga. Um, I say partially eponymous because here the name Volsunger is initially presented as a grammatically singular personal name, identifying specifically Odin's great-grandson, though it is then also used in much of the rest of the saga in the plural, the Volsungs, as a kind of family or clan name. The saga's title itself uses it in this latter way, in the gen of the plural. It's the saga of the Volsungs, of the Volsung family, Volsunga saga. This shift of emphasis with the name is a little unusual, but it probably points to the West Germanic origins of the story, um, reminding us that most of the core or cores of these legends were originally imports to Scandinavia. The Old English poem Beowulf, which is at least 200 years earlier, I think, than any of the main surviving Scandinavian or continental sources for the Volsung legends, um, Beowulf knows this name as Welsing and seems to understand it as a patronymic, um, describing a hero, Sigmund, um, the offspring of Wels, thus Sigmund, uh, Sigmund the Welsing. Um, a form of this name, Welsung, uh, also appears as apparently an individual personal name in 8th or 9th century Germany, where, as we mentioned in the previous session, a rash of personal names remarkably similar to those appearing in the Volsung legendary cycle were recorded. In the West Germanic languages, including Old English, Old High German, the ing or ung suffix, these are just variants of each other, could indeed be used with patronymic senses, or at least to designate genetic descent from a common ancestor. Um, they could be used with other senses too, though if you are familiar with Beowulf and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the patronymic senses may be the first that you think of, since they are used in such ways in both these sources. However, it seems that Old Norse did not, at least originally, use this ing ung suffix to mark genetic descent. Um, through influence from West Germanic languages, the suffix does seem to have acquired this purpose in Scandinavia by the medieval period, when our versions of the legends were recorded. But if you go back and look at how this suffix was used 
earlier through its appearance in place names, which are often from the Viking Age or Iron Age, if not even earlier, you find that the suffix didn't seem to indicate descent from or even connection with named individuals, as was not uncommon in contrast in West Germanic. Um, this ing or unsuffix could be used to make name for groups, but it generally designated affinity with some natural feature of the landscape. Um, separately, the suffix could also be used to form personal names, but not patronymics. So it seems that if a name like Walsung or something like that was a well-established part of the legends in West Germanic context, whether it designated the person a family or a father and son relationship there, it would in any case most probably be understood as a personal individual name when it came to Scandinavia. Thus, King Volsung. Later, Scandinavians perhaps realized this personal name had a form like the patronymic or clan names that were formed with the Ingon suffix in West Germanic context, which they knew about uh, and where the stories clearly originated in any case. And thus, in our saga, it ends up being also used, sort of without explanation, to refer to the descendants of King Volsunger as well as King Volsunger himself. And we might reasonably ask then what this name meant etymologically, whether originally a personal name or a patronymic, it does seem to have been formed on a first element like wall or waltz. Um, there has never really been much agreement on this matter, but there are two main possibilities. One is that the root um, is from a Germanic word, wallus, meaning staff, which we just mentioned in connection with um, vulva. Um, this appears in uh, this word appears in normal the normal Old Norse noun voler, which we just talked about, staff, um, and perhaps also um, appears in the name or term um, Volsi, which is used in a medieval Icelandic story set in pre-Christian times to identify, um, there's not a delicate way to say this, a preserved horse penis used as a cult object. Um, this theory is attractive philologically anyway, if perhaps not otherwise, because it connects with what might otherwise be certain echoes of fertility myths in this prequel section of Volsunga Saga. Um, for example, though Tolkien skips this part of the story as Volsunga Saga tells it, it seems that Volsung's father, Rerir, um, was having some difficulty conceiving a child and his prayers to his grandfather, Odin, regarding this matter resulted in Odin's wife, Frigg, sending down a magic apple via Valkyrie delivery service. And after Rerir had eaten the apple and gone to meet the queen, as the saga puts it with remarkable delicacy, a child was soon on the way. Um, the difficulty here with this theory is that the name Volsi for a fertility cult object is known, I think, only in Scandinavia and only in a relatively late recorded tale. Thus, it's hard to be sure whether similar practices and names appeared in other Germanic-speaking contexts at much earlier dates when we know a name like Welsung already existed in some West Germanic areas. The other main theory about the origin of the name Volsunger is that the wall element is related to the German words Val, meaning choice, and Valen, meaning to choose. Here the theory implies that Sigurd's ancestor was somehow the chosen one. Um, what this might have meant in an early Germanic context is hard to say, though this was in fact Tolkien's preferred explanation, and he made use of it in his own versions of these legends. Just catch up quickly with some questions here. Knitlinga saga, Sterlingo saga. Yeah, Knitlinga saga. Um, Kendra brings up, I think you're talking about the Ingung suffix there. Um, it does end up being used in Sturlunga saga. I'll deal with that first. Um, and a number of names in Sturlunga saga, but almost not outside it. And this is 
into the medieval period. Likewise, Knitlinga Saga, um, that appears to that term, Knitling, I think it really only appears in the name of the, the saga itself and in the context of the saga, it's never used anywhere else. So you don't find it, you know, the Danes weren't talking as far as we know about Knitlingas. Um, so it's pretty rare, um, just about the only possible use that I can find. And there are a couple of other place names where it appears in medieval sources, but these are places where it looks like there might have been West Germanic influence, like in Gotland and places like that. Um, there was a good study of this on place names by a Swedish guy back in the 1920s or 30s or something like that. He went through all the sources in the kind of relentless detail that only an early 20th century Swedish philologist could do. Um, and he looked at all these, these things. Um, the other one, the other place where it might be in a relatively early context is on the Rook runic inscription, where there's a use of the ing or ung suffix to identify a group. But even here, it's not clear that West Germanic influence at that early date is not um, a possibility. Um, in any case, using the ing ung suffix to identify connection with named individuals before medieval times um, in Scandinavia is, is, is pretty rare. Um, rare enough that you, you pretty much have to, to try to come up with a, a good explanation for why it would indicate a connection with um, a, a named individual. But in any case, uh, yeah, we could talk more about that, but I won't um, right now. Um, if I can come up sometime later with the, uh, the, the reference of the Swedish guy, I'll, I'll send it along. Um, in any case, back to the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, um, Volsung is a mighty king. In Volsung Saga, he's actually a king of the Huns, though Tolkien skips that detail. Um, he builds a mighty hall, which perhaps reminds us of Frothgar and Beowulf, and he marries a Valkyrie, which is a bit less like anything in Beowulf, but is it's something of an archaic heroic trope in Norse legend and a recurring feature in the Norse versions of the Volsung legends. Indeed, the Valkyrie Volsung marries in Volsunga Saga is actually the same one that brought the magic pregnancy-inducing apple to his father. That seems a bit weird, really, um, and Tolkien does mention that Volsunger's uh, wife is a Valkyrie, but as we said, he skipped the whole thing with the apple and Volsung's dad. Um, Volsung himself apparently needs no apples, though, and he has a number of children. He has a daughter named Signy and ten sons, though the only one of these who gets a name in Volsunga Saga, or in Tolkien's versions, is Sigmund. When she grows up, Signy is to be married to a king of the Gauts named Sigair. Um, the name um, Gauts or Gauter in Old Norse uh, corresponds etymologically to the name of the Yetas, um, the Geats, as they're sometimes pronounced in Old English, the people of Beowulf in his Old English poem. In Old Norse literature, the um, Gauts and Gautland seem to have been just considered good things to have in heroic legend to some extent, so we don't necessarily need to read a lot of significance into that correspondence. Anyway, Signy is not terribly enthusiastic about the proposed marriage, which should be a sign, since whenever women disapprove of their marriages in Old Norse literature, something terrible inevitably follows from having ignored this, as you might expect. But Volsung and his sons have perhaps not read as much Old Norse literature as they should. Um, Odin takes advantage of the wedding feast, though, to come in disguise and stick a magic sword named Gram into a big tree growing in the middle of Volsung's hall, and it turns out that only Sigmund can draw the sword out. 
Um, this, of course, reminds us of the sword and the stone motif, most familiar to us from Arthurian legend, probably. And perhaps for that reason, Tolkien never uses it in his own original fiction, though it is retained here as an important plot point. Odin has essentially delivered a magic sword to his descendants' family. Um, King Sigar of the Garrets is a bit miffed, though, that he didn't get the magic sword in addition to Signy, and he decides to... Um, to you know, take revenge, kind of invite Volsung and his followers to a feast with the plan of then treacherously killing them there um, and perhaps thereby getting the sword. Um, about this, Volsunga saga actually includes a rather good section in which Signy attempts to warn her father that her new husband Sigurd plans to kill him and her brothers. But Volsunger, um, one, objects that he has sworn an oath never to run away, and he isn't going to break it now, but also, two, that she's now married to Sigurd and shouldn't betray his secrets even to save her father and brothers. Volsunger has a beyond even heroic regard for the sanctity of his sworn word. Um, this issue of the conflict of sworn oaths with blood ties is perhaps at the heart of the medieval legends. And so this exchange between Volsunger and his daughter, close to the start of Volsunger saga, actually sets up this theme pretty well. But of course, Tolkien was perhaps trying to steer the mean theme of the story towards the cosmic salvation that would be performed by Sigurd. And so perhaps that's part of why he skips this in his version. But in any case, in both Volsunger saga and Tolkien's poems, Volsung does indeed go to Sigurd's feast, where entirely predictably, he is indeed treacherously killed by his new son-in-law. Now, Signe, regardless of being married to Sigurd, is socially required to take revenge for the killing of her brother relations. But in Old Norse literature, women do not generally take an active role in physical violence. Rather, they arrange for violence to be carried out by men. We need to skip over some details here, and indeed Tolkien skips a lot of what Volsunga Saga has to tell, but the practical upshot is that Signy's brother Sigmund has survived um, the slaughter, and he's in hiding as an outlaw, but on his own he can't overcome all of Sigurd's men and take revenge. So in Volsunga Saga, Signy first sends some of her sons by Sigurd to be trained by Sigmund in the hopes that they will aid in taking revenge by killing their own father. However, none of her and Sigurd's sons are sufficiently heroic, and so she has Sigmund kill them for being useless. Um, Tolkien skips over this bit of maternal infanticide. Um, then it's tough for him to skip Signy's plan B to this, since it's rather essential to the plot, though he does try to dial it back a bit. Um, Essentially now, Signy reckons that you need a super Volsung to avenge a Volsung. And so she changes shape with a sorceress, um, as you do, visits Sigmund in disguise and incestuously conceives a son with him, which is um, called Sinfjotli. Um, she later sends Sinfjotli to Sigmund in training, and Sinfjotli is indeed going to be sufficiently heroic to take revenge for Volsung, though Sigmund has no idea that Sinfjotli is apparently both his nephew and son. Um, at least in this version, he has no idea. Who knows? and any other lost versions. But the two of them, Sigmund and Sinvertly, have numerous adventures and do end up eventually killing Sigir. Then and only then does Signy reveal that Sinvertly is the incestuous son that she secretly conceived with Sigmund. And she then immediately retreats into the burning royal hall to die with her much loathed but now slain husband. Um, people sometimes wonder what motivates this choice on her part. I think it's partially that carrying on as the knowing perpetrator of incest is not acceptable, but perhaps also that now having fulfilled the obligations of loyalty to her blood family by ensuring her husband was killed, she will now uh, and only now fulfill 
her obligations uh, of marriage by sharing her husband's fate in death. Um, this is pretty much consistent with the logic of Norse heroic legend, exemplified by her own dad, Volsunger, who went knowingly to his death in order to preserve the sanctity of his oaths. Both Volsunger Saga and Tolkien then wind up the whole Sigmund and Sinfjotli segment by having Sigmund marry uh, again, and then Sinfjotli poisoned by his new stepmother. Um, despite his not having died in battle, Odin does take Sinfjotli off to Valhalla. Perhaps it was a family benefit. Well, um, this is all great stuff, even though we've had to skip quite quickly through um, a lot of it, but you can see why many modern critics have objected that it really has very little to do with the plot as it works out in the rest of the legends, with the, the whole bit with the bizarre love polygon of Sigurd and Gudrun and Brynhild, and then all the business with the Burgundians and the Huns. Um, but in fact, besides the general themes of deception, sacrifice, and a truly awesome devotion to one's oaths and obligation for revenge, the whole subplot in which a king invites another king to visit so that they can then treacherously kill them, and the treacherous king's wife being a blood relation of the invited king and trying to warn him of the plot, but he ignores the warning and general bloodshed and tragedy ensue, this, we will see, ends up being echoed in the final portion of the Volsungnivum legends, um, which we're going to discuss probably next time uh, in the medieval sources, as well as in Tolkien's poems. Um, but before we go there, um, before we go there, oops, has my sound been cut off? Hello, hello, can you hear me? Uh, I've been able to hear you fine. I don't know how the audience is hearing. Okay. Okay, Alexander, I'm sorry you weren't able to hear there. Everybody's seeing that I sound fine, so we'll move on. Um, as long as I'm here, Nelson, can I have the next slide, please? There you go. Friends heard me perfectly. Okay, there we go. So now we're going to talk a bit about um, some other fun things here. Um, we need to step back very slightly before leaving Sigmund and Sinfjotli and say a little bit more about them um, before the latter Sinfjotli dies, and indeed before the final concentration with Sigurd and the death of Signy. Um, we've said that Sigmund and Sinfjotli have various adventures. Um, Tolkien compresses all these, as have we, um, for reasons of time, but we should say here that the Norse version of the, um, the legend in Volsunga Saga is reflected rather tantalizingly, if only faintly, in much earlier sources. Sinfjotli's name appears to somehow correspond to a name uh, recorded as Sintar Fitzillo, um, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, but there you can see it on the slide, found as a personal name in ninth or, uh, eighth or ninth century Bavaria, as well as to the name Fitella, um, uh, although they're uh, lacking the initial sin element, which um, is a person the Old English poem Beowulf describes as being the nephew, although it says nothing about also being the son, uh, of the hero Sigamund. So though we can't pry into the details, it seems pretty clear that Sigmunder and Sinfotli, who we know in the 13th century Volsunga saga, actually had a pretty long history and story as perhaps family members and companions in adventure, going back to um, at least the Viking Age and perhaps even the 8th century. Um, and this brings us to the matter of the dragon. Um, one rather important thing that the Old English Sigmund does in Beowulf, that the Old Norse Sigmund does not, is slay a dragon. In the Old Norse tradition, it is Sigmund's son, um, Sigurd, who is the great dragon-slaying hero. And though the German and continental tradition is a bit vague on this front, it also seems like its hero, Siegfried, was a dragon-slayer, not his father, um, Sigmund or Sigismund. So people have long wondered, 
did the Beowulf poet get it wrong? Did he mess up and give the dragon slaying laurels to Sigmund instead of rightfully to his son, as in the Old Norse sources? Or does Beowulf actually preserve an older version of the story in which Sigmund was indeed the original dragon slayer and only much later was credit for this deed transferred to someone who is described as his son? Well, that was another major question in the study of the legends in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and such questions have since passed out of fashion for a long while, though I have seen a few scholars taking them up again more recently. Um, but Tolkien certainly had his opinion, and his thoughts on it appear in the commentary notes accompanying his published translation of Beowulf, which um, there have already been some seminar sessions with Tom uh, Shippey discussing them. But for our purposes here, Tolkien essentially agreed that Sigmund was probably the original dragon-slaying hero. Um, indeed, though not all scholars shared this opinion back in Tolkien's day or earlier, I think it has increasingly become the majority opinion insofar as very many scholars still worry about this kind of question. But in any case, if we accept Sigmund as having been the original dragon-slayer, later losing this jump to someone presented in later versions of the legends as his son, well, this should be a signal for anyone hoping to pin down a original version of these uh, legends that Sigurd or Siegfried is a combination of different characters and indeed different elements from different characters. Uh, perhaps the fact that the Norse and German versions of the legend we know have similar but etymologically different names is another clue. There are actually aspects of Sigurd that look likely to have been based on or at least influenced by genuinely historical persons or events and we'll talk about them a bit more when we get to the whole bizarre love uh, triangle issues, but it seems rather less likely that dragon slaying is one of them. Um, indeed, dragon slaying seems to be a very old mythological motif in not just Germanic, but wider Indo-European myth and legend, um, and indeed also in Middle Eastern and other Asian cultures. It's often part of a larger creation myth in that once the world is created, it's still not quite ready to be inhabited, and a god or demigod or hero or somebody or something has to slay a dragon that is withholding powers of fertility, often appearing as water, but also treasure, um, cows, um, or yes, also as a maiden or princess uh, in our stereotypical way. Um, and through the slaying the dragon, releasing the powers of fertility, the world is made fertile and suitable for habitation. Um, this dragon motif, uh, slaying motif um, escapes out of high cosmic mythology and into other kinds of storytelling. And in the Germanic-speaking world, we find a whole slew of monster-fighting folktale types that seem to descend ultimately from a very old myth of this kind. So perhaps there was a revenge story of the kind Volsunga Saga tells us about Sigmund and Sienfudli, though an earlier version might have existed at least 500 years even before the saga, Volsunga Saga, was written. Um, and as a perhaps popular hero, Sigmund got equipped with a version of this ancient dragon-slaying tale that was already separately banging around in folklore. The Norse Sigmund and Sinfidli are pretty tight uh, companions in their story, and Beowulf implies that Sigmund and Fithila likewise did almost everything together. But the poem Beowulf also emphasizes that Fithila was not present for the dragon slaying. Um, in fact, the details of the dragon slaying, where and how it happened, are in fact different in Beowulf and the Old Norse sources. And all this might hint that Sigmund himself acquired the dragon slaying episode from elsewhere uh, and that the details of the deed um, itself could have varied. But in any case, perhaps Sigmund then lost his dragon slaying credentials to someone described as his son, um, not the nephew and apparently incestuous son that was the mainstay of his legend, but a 
posthumously born son who had actually attracted Sigmund's story towards his own, um, thanks maybe to the similar sounding name, but a character that otherwise had nothing much to do with Sigmund originally, uh, and who had subtly, subtly distinct names in Scandinavia and Germany. So if you're thinking the whole issue of Sigmund and dragon slaying and his posthumous son looks complex and confusing, it's because it is complex and confusing. And I think Tolkien would agree. He certainly agreed that Sigmund, not Sigurd, was the probably original or at least more original dragon slayer in these legends. Now Tolkien knew all this, but of course, um, and here's the thing, in his own Sigurd and Gudrun poems, Tolkien remains true to the medieval Scandinavian versions of the legend, where Sigurd, son of Sigmund, is the dragon slayer. Uh, and I think this is an important clue to Tolkien's method and purpose. He was not trying to reconstruct some original pure version of the legends. Um, now he was trying to organize and unify, I think those are actually the words he used to describe um, his work with these legends, organize and unify them, specifically the medieval Norse versions of these legends. But these Norse versions were in any case something that had come together from other, perhaps originally quite diverse kinds of stories and sources. And Tolkien himself was then imposing his own original ideas on these stories, taking elements and ideas from elsewhere in Norse mythology and imposing a cosmic significance on the Norse story of Sigurd the Dragonslayer. A significance perhaps very vaguely hinted at in his sources, but really basically not there. It was his own creation, or perhaps rather sub-creation. So, let me just see if I have some more questions. Alexander says, my sound is now coming in, in and out. It's on now. Hopefully everybody else is able to hear me okay still. Um, uh, Tony Mead asks, you mean like the desolation of Smaug? Um, Sparrow says, sound is fine and consistent. Okay, perhaps Alexander, you're having some some web problems, uh, can still handle So let's hope it's all going well, um, and we'll carry carry on. So um, returning to our plot in the legends, um, the legends and um, Tolkien's poems, which are still paralleling them here. Um, Sigmund, after Sinfjotli's death, we never really find out what happened to the poisoning stepmother. It's it's always a poisoning stepmother. Um, but anyway, um, Sigmund apparently remarries. In the Norse sources, his new wife is named Hjordis, but her name, at least, might be an intrusion from another probably originally separate group of legends about a hero or a set of similar heroes named Helgi. In the Helgi legends, which we know from uh, other poems in the Codex Regis, um, the hero's family has a lot of names that begin with H, while in the Sigmund and Sigurd legends, we have a lot of names that begin with S. In Volsunga Saga, the hero Helgi is indeed presented as a son of Sigmund and Hjordis, though in the Helgi legends, um, one of the Helgis, there are several, is presented with a mother named Sigurlin. It is as if the names of the respective mothers became swapped around when the Sigurd and Helgi legends started to collide. Tolkien clearly thought this was an unnecessary confusion. He omits any Helgis from his poems, but he does restore perhaps authentically, who knows, the name Sigurlin to Sigurd's mother. Um, this name Sigurlin is essentially cognate with the name of the mother of the hero Siegfried in the German Nibelungenlied, um, which is Siglint. Um, this is just a more Norse version of Siglint. 
Um, but Sigmund has now played out his role in these legends. Uh, abandoned by Odin in battle, um, indeed Odin shatters the sword Gram with his spear, um, Sigmund is mortally wounded and dying. He instructs his wife, Sigurlind in Tolkien's version, who is pregnant with Sigurd, to gather up the shards of the sword shattered by Odin's spear and to keep them for Sigurd's future use. If you are now thinking about the shards of Narsil, eventually reforged as Anduril for Aragorn in um, Lord of the Rings, then I uh, think you are right. Um, though, of course, um, Tolkien uses this motif of the shattered sword and the shattered royal lineage um, in a somewhat different context of his own devising. And that's actually, um, since we're mentioning it, where I think Tolkien's eventual strength, which he was still developing in the early 1930s, comes from. He would take these kinds of powerful legendary and mythological motifs that he at least knew from medieval legend sources, um, but he would reuse them to support his own stories. In this way, he kind of fused the differing goals of medieval legend and modern literature. Um, modern audiences like us, we're obsessed with originality and authorship. When you roll out all the traditional patterns and motifs of myth and legend today, um, quite often people will grumble and say, oh, that trope is so overused. Another prince disguised as a farm boy or whatever it is. Oh, you got that from another place. And well, of course we got it from another place. Um, but pre-modern audiences were not much concerned with this kind of originality. That's just not really such a highly valued thing in folklore and folk tradition. Instead, um, those kinds of audiences wanted versions of stories they knew, but they should firstly be skillfully told and they should be very rousing versions of those familiar stories. Um, and they should also be versions that fit with their particular expectations and interests, which are, of course, things that change over time as societies and cultures evolve. And we can kind of see that in the medieval versions of the also enabling legends. But anyway, returning to the medieval legends and Tolkien's poetic retelling of them, um, with Sigmund dead, um, a passing fleet of pirates captures his pregnant wife, Sigurlin, though as she has changed clothes with her handmaid, she is not recognized as queen. But she is carried off by a passing fleet of pirates, always a, a hazard in Norse legend. Um, and her son by Sigmund named Sigurd, um, Tolkien's chosen hero at last, is born if into slavery. Um, this may actually be a somewhat archaic feature of the character of Sigurd. Or, or one of the characters of Sigurd. Though the medieval Norse sources present his descent as divine and Sivrid in the Nibelungen lead is a well-born prince, the stories nevertheless haven't sung, uh, you know, shrugged off the hints that Sigurd has perhaps come from nothing, so to speak. It's hard to tell if this is the general chosen one of noble birth, not recognized because they're a farm boy trope, um, with which we are still familiar in modern fantasy, or whether some early version of a Sigurd character was genuinely a nobody. It's quite possible that 13th century audiences, certainly in the aristocratic society of Southern Germany, um, per perhaps even still in the less courtly culture of Scandinavia, particularly Iceland, were less impressed with the idea that a great hero could have ignoble origins, and so they were trying to perhaps pump him up a little bit. Um, but anyway, with the hero Sigurd, at last part of our story, Tolkien generally follows Volsunga Saga in having Sigurd growing up and being fostered to a smith, who, lo and behold, turns out to be one Regan, son of Freydmar. 
remember Hreidmar and Vari's Gold. These things are starting to come together. Um, Thidric Saga, which we mentioned last time, um, Thidric Saga of Bern has an alternate version of this in which the infant Sigurd is found floating in a basket. Um, another good hero motif by a smith who fosters him, though in Thidric Saga the smith is named Mimir, with no connection back to the myth of Anvari's treasure. Um, that um, there might have been an Old Norse prologue, a pre-Christian one, to explain the origins of the treasure. Um, there's no, it's hard to say um, what happens to that, and there's no hint of it in continental or German sources. Um, the best we know is that really Siegfried, Siegfried acquires a, a treasure from um, the dwarves or possibly giants, um, supernatural beings of some kind, um, during his journey to the Burgundian stronghold. We'll come back to that in a moment. But anyway, in Volsunga Saga and in the Eddic poems, as well as in Tolkien's poems, the smith Regan eventually talks Sigurd into fighting his brother Fafnir. Um, the dragon who had previously slain um, his father, Freydmar, to get the treasure, cursed though it was by Anvari. And as we say, he's since become a dragon. Um, it's not clear whether Regan is more interested in avenging his father, as he claims, or whether he's more interested in the treasure. There is a curse at work, so probably both. Um, now, it is only at this point that Volsunga Saga now introduces the backstory of Odin and Loki and Anvari's gold, um, though the prose edda had led off uh, its summary of the Volsunga legends with that myth. Tolkien, though having already told about Anvari's gold um, previously, after dealing with the creation of the world, then actually recaps that story here as well, which is some relatively rare repetition in his otherwise highly elusive and condensed narrative. In Volsunga Saga, Sigurd refuses to deal with any dragons until he has avenged his father's death. This is a proper Norse heroic attitude, actually, but um, it seems to have been extraneous to Tolkien's purposes here, um, and his Sigurd more or less now gets on with the dragon slaying, though uh, we do come back to um, Sigurd's revenge later. Sigurd's revenge for Sigmund later. Um, Sigurd obtains from his mother, um, again, Sigurlind in Tolkien's version, the shards of Gram, the sword Sigmund had got from Odin, and Regan eventually reforges them to Sigurd's satisfaction. Sigurd then confronts the transformed dragon Fafnir, he digs a pit, and from it stabs Fafnir as he passes overhead. This, of course, should probably recall to us how Tolkien's hero Turin Turambar uh, slays the dragon Glaurung. The Volsung DNA in Turin is pretty obviously expressed in um, his stories. Um, interesting, Hilly, here in his Volsung poems, um, Tolkien makes a point of noting that the blood welling out of the dying dragon um, that drenched Sigurd down in his pit hardens his skin against weapons. And this is also a feature of the German versions of the hero, Siegfried, um, who then nevertheless has one weak point on his body that was not touched by the dragon blood. And of course, he is eventually slain when his weak point is found and exploited. That's in the German versions, um, but not the Norse versions. And this this weak spot, this is an ancient motif for legendary heroes, of course. It's the Achilles heel motif, so named for the Greek hero from the Iliad cycle. Um, Tolkien, however, then never mentions Sigin, Sigurd's hardened skin again in his poems. Um, though we are reminded, rather conversely, of the one weak point um, in the dragon Smaug's armor of encrusted gems in The Hobbit. Um, 
speaking of which, Volsunga Saga and the Eddic poems also present a lengthy riddling conversation between Sigurd and the dying Fafnir, um, which seems to have influenced the conversations of Bilbo and Smaug in The Hobbit. But Tolkien's Volsung poetry largely omits this. Um, Regan pops back up once Fafnir is finally dead, um, cuts out his heart, drinks the blood, as you do, and then tells Sigurd to roast the heart while Regan sleeps off the dragon's blood. Um, Sigurd does this, but he burns his thumb, poking the heart, see how it's coming along, and this enables him to understand the language of birds. Perhaps it's only cooked dragon heart blood that has that power. But in any case, conveniently, some birds are in hand, and they not surprisingly tell Sigurd that he'd best take care, between quotes, take care of Regan before Regan takes care of him. Um, a word to the wise, or even to Sigurd, is sufficient. And Sigurd, seeing Regan creeping up on him, actually, um, does kill him. So much for the family of Fredmar and his sons. But this scene with the roasted dragon heart, the burnt thumb, and even the talking bird seems to have been a well-established part of the Norse dragon slayer legend. Um, not necessarily Sigurd, since that much earlier it is conceivable at least that the dragon slayer could have been Sigmund still, but the basic elements of this scene anyway seem to have been a well-established part of the legend um, as early as the, the later Viking period. Um, Nelson, can you pop me the next slide up there? of scenes. Aha, there we go. Thank you. So hopefully you're now seeing uh, a slide with the Ramsund uh, runic inscription. Um, this is a probably 11th century runic inscription from Sweden that is decorated with what is pretty certainly the elements of the scene we've just been talking about. There's a hero with his sword stuck upwards through a dragon. There's a roasting heart, a seared thumb stuck into a mouth, another figure with Smith's tools and his head has been cut off. There's even a bird perched in a tree. Um, so there you go. And you can see all that um, in our in our slide there. Um, and uh, they're, they're numbered. There's even what might um, some people think might be uh, otter. Uh, there's some little uh, a little quadruped off in one corner there. Well, corner, one side, um, who might be otter, but I don't know. Um, that might be stretching it, but I can't figure out what else that might be either. Um, we've got Sigurd's horse in the scene, Sigurd's cat. Um, I don't know. Anyway, um, can you uh, pass me along to the next slide now, um, Nelson, please? There we go. Some wood carvings that you should be seeing now from uh, Hulestad State Church in Norway. Um, and so the point here is that similar iconography to this, um, we just saw it, a version from the late Viking Age in the 11th century, and then we see it... Um, probably a couple hundred years later, um, a similar kind of scene depicted in medieval wood cardings as well. So this is pretty clearly um, well-known stuff. We've got on one side there, um, Sigurd fighting the dragon, and on the other side, there's Sigurd um, sucking his thumb, which he burned while racing the dragon's heart, quite similar to what we saw in the runestone. Um, and there are actually other scenes from uh, the legends in, in this, um, carved in this, this Dave church as well. Um, so, Anyway, as far back as the 11th century, it's tough to say how many other parts of the legend um, this recognizable dragon slaying scene might have already been connected with. But clearly, the dragon slaying scene with the burning thumb and um, the slaying of the smith uh, and all this was pretty well established. So anyway, with the dragon dispatched, and thus another part of Tolkien's prophecy for redeeming the world fulfilled, Sigurd now gathers up the cursed treasure of Andvari's gold for himself, including, of course, Andvari's ring. 
um, which is used to cover uh, Ulter's whisker, which was used to co cover Ulter's whisker when the gods paid for his killing. Um, Sigurd then hears the birds talking again, prophesying about the two women with whom he is about to become involved. Um, but he pays no real attention to this. Um, perhaps he sh should have. And Tolkien's going to start a new section of the poem, the first poem that he is in the Legend of Sigurd Gudrun at this point in the story, which is titled for and focused on the character of Brynhild, um, one of the two women, at least, um, with whom Sigurd is going to become involved. But this is where things, both in the narrative of the legends and in the history of their evolution, uh, and thus also for Tolkien's poem, starts to get complicated um, for various reasons. Some to do with the plot uh, or plots, and some to do with the way that the legends evolved historically. Um, and indeed it is perhaps mostly in the rather fascinating collision between the largely mythologically oriented parts of these narratives that we've been looking at up to now, and then events from the actual history of early Germanic Europe that gave the Volsung Nibelung legends uh, such dynamic force and longevity. Uh, and we haven't looked at the, the historically based event yet, but we will in our upcoming session. But it is perhaps this coll collision between the mythological and the historical that um, made them so attractive to so many, including Tolkien, for so long. But at the same time, this may also be part, at least part, of what made them ultimately unsuitable for telling the kind of story that Tolkien perhaps more and more wanted to really tell. Um, but I think we will save that uh, exploration, the exploration of really the, the heart of these legends, um, their, for their medieval purposes, um, and indeed for Tolkien's purposes, for our, our next and final session in this series of three, um, where we're going to finally tackle those betrayals and deaths that are at the heart of the story and in its denouement. Um, so there we go, pretty much. That's the, uh, I think we still have some time for, for questions. Um, Thank you, Nelson, for bringing up our last slide there, but we can go back to other slides if they're relevant to people's questions. Um, let me throw the floor open um, to further questions or thoughts if people have them. If people don't, I suppose we can go ahead and start talking about um, the next parts, but um, we blasted through a lot of stuff here in, in, in short order, so there may be a lot of things that We've skipped past. What have we got going on? I'm just going to, while I wait and see if anybody comes up with a question in the next minute, I was going to skip ahead and see if I can find that reference that I mentioned to Kendra. Uh, what's his name? Stoll, uh, the one about place names and ings and ungs and stuff like that. Uh, he must be here somewhere. Few questions coming in here. Let me see if I can. <laughs> we're a bit, we're a bit stunned. Well, it's all pretty stunning. Um, I admit, when I started uh, putting this, uh, these sessions together, uh, notes for them, I thought like, oh, you know, my gosh, we'll just blast through the whole story really and talk about everything useful in it in the first session or two, and then you know we're like, oh, we we'll talk about other Norse things and Tolkien's work. But you know, the more I looked at it, the more and more there was to talk at it. 
Um, so uh, let's see. Sigurd's horse was named Grani. Yes, uh, that's actually a, a pretty consistent feature of the Scandinavian versions. Grani is quite a uh, person. There's a Faroe East ballad of Regan Smither, which doesn't really go into a great deal to detail about the plot, as best as I recall. Um, but it, the refrain mentions Grani over and over, and Grani's taking the treasure away from the heath and that kind of thing. By the time Wagner came on the scene, that horse belonged to Brunhilde. Um, yes, indeed. Um, do the horses move around as much as the people? Well, Grani, I think, is the only really um, named horse. No, that's not true. Um, eventually, Gunnar gets a named horse as well. Um, it's not as significant. Horses often get names in um, in Norse legend. Grani's named horse, uh, Sigurd's named horse, Grani, is, is a pretty consistent feature of the legend in Norse sources, as I mentioned. I don't remember whether he gets one in the Nibelungen lead. Um, but this gets taken up by by Tolkien, of course. He gives, um, uh, you know, he names a number of horses in Lord of the Rings. We have Shadowfax and, uh, and so forth. Um, I think Errol the Young's horse had a name as well. I'm blanking on it at the moment. Um, but Wagner, of course, moved a lot of things around. I mean, Wagner really retooled the legends. Wagner had a very specific story he wanted to tell, and he was very comfortable doing um, considerable violence to the, the, you know, his medieval sources, the integrity of his medieval sources, uh, in order to tell that story. And for good or for ill, um, Tolkien, I don't think, was as willing to do that kind of thing. So there was no way Tolkien was going to give Grani to Brunhild. It just wasn't right, that Sigurd's horse. Um, he wasn't going to get rid of the quarrel of the queens. Um, although, as we'll see, well, you know, it is kind of, you know, central to his legend. But, you know, you could tell a whole story of a redeeming figure uh, who saves the world, um, who has to be a great hero without doing all the things that Sigurd does. Because Sigurd... Is, is kind of questionably heroic. He's killed a dragon, um, somewhat surreptitiously by stabbing it from underneath. Um, and his foster father, he's killed, and um, then he's going to get killed. But, you know, it's, uh, it ends up being sort of questionable um, how heroic he is. Let me just see if I can get through. Um, but as far as I know, there's only the two named horses in, in the Norse version of the legend, Grani, and then I think Gulti is the name of Gunnar's horse. We'll come on to him next time. Um, and I don't think anything anything else further happens to him. Um, Grani comes out of this all pretty well. As far as I know, nothing happens to Grani. He lives to a ripe old age in, in uh, the Burgundian stronghold, uh, as far as I know. Um, probably, probably gets out of the legends better than pretty much anybody else in them. So... Yeah, you, um, there's, here's a comment from Joe Hoffman. I am struggling. Yeah, this is. I'll, I'll try to do my best to read this out because I don't think anybody else can can see the questions that are coming to me. So Joe says, I'm afraid there's more of a comment than the question. I'm struggling with the exceptionally compressed nature of the poetry in Tolkien. You need the background material to understand what is happening on the surface. Some of the poems don't have much of a storyline on the surface without the backfilling besides the poetry itself. This is different from his other non-Middle-earth material, Yes, it is. Uh, an unusual kind of intertextuality, um, certainly for, for Tolkien and for many modern authors. That's true. If Tolkien wanted to bring this material into a new cosmological framework, why write it for the smallish group of people that can read this and read it fluently? Um, uh, that's the that question there. That's a good question. Um, and I think it has several pieces of answers. So you're absolutely right. Tolkien's poems, and this is something that Chris Tolkien mentions in an almost apologetic tone in his commentary. Um, 
Tolkien's poetry here in The Legend of Sigrun Gudrun is very compressed and very elusive, sometimes more, sometimes less. We've mentioned a few points where he does repeat himself. Um, I can't quite decide whether that's by accident or design, but it is incredibly compressed and elusive, um, much more so. And it's true that essentially you need to kind of know the story in order to understand the poems. Um, so who was he writing this for um, and why? Um, was it for the Inklings or something like that? Quite possibly. I, I don't think that we know whether he shared these poems with the Inklings. There's very little mention of them outside of a few brief references in his published letters. There's almost no other hint of these. Um, and when they were eventually, their publication was announced, you know, almost 10 years ago. Now, I think it, you know, it came, uh, the contents were, were still going to be something of a surprise. And people knew they were about the Volsung legends, but not much more than that. So I don't even know if he even shared these with the Inklings. They, he wrote them and then he put them away and he never really talked about them very much except a few mentions. So um, part of why I think he was trying to be allusive, not, not quite elusive, but allusive, um, and you wrote, he wrote poems that really depended on your knowledge of the backstory, which I, I think this is certainly Tolkien's conception of what a lot of the Norse Eddic poetry itself is like. We need to remember that this was, if you lived in certainly um, uh, medieval Scandinavia, um, 13th century Iceland, presumably the 12th century and a lot of uh, other parts. We have the carvings in Sweden from the 11th century. If you lived in the later Viking Age and, and medieval period in Scandinavia, you knew um, these stories in the same way, and this is the example I made last time, that people kind of have, you know, at least a vague knowledge of things, you know, lots of popular culture things today, um, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and the Marvel and DC comic book universes. You might not know all the details. Some people might um, know all the details in the ins and outs, but everybody had a kind of general familiarity with these legends. And so when people were hearing Eddic poems, um, if they were performed in some oral context or if they were reading them, they were reading something they already knew the story of. And the real emphasis was on how the story was told and the particular elements that a poet was bringing out. Um, there are other Eddic poems, in fact, in the Helgi poems, we've mentioned the Helgi poems, where they're being composed at different times. And there's at least one of the poems where it looks like the composer of the poem expected you to perhaps you know, maybe nip off and check back with one of the other poems that was in the collection to, you know, fill in bits of the story. So to an extent, Tolkien is being kind of um, hyper-realistic. There's a wonderful quote in his commentary, which, which um, Christopher Tolkien includes, that although old English poetry, things like Beowulf was, um, you know, that kind of poetry, that kind of semi-epic poetry was very narrative. You can read Beowulf and yes, it's poetry and the word order shifts around, but you can deassemble it and put it out into, you know, a pretty straight prose translation as Tolkien himself um, did. Norse poetry is not like that. The phrase Tolkien uses is Norse poetry wants to hit you in the eye. Um, it's about kind of, you know, um, oral or verbal fireworks. And so that's a difficulty for us because these legends are no longer part of our just, you know, common core of, of, of stories. We just don't have them at our fingertips as part of popular culture as people did then. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, 
And if I go back and, you know, um, why did he do this? Did he want to bring this to, you know, a, a wider audience? I don't know to what extent Tolkien was writing these poems as an exercise for himself. Was he thinking of a wider audience? He was trying to publish some things. He had published some poetry. He was aware, and it's possible that people were more aware of these stories back then because, you know, kids' books had stories of Sigurd and William Morris had unleashed his 10,000 or whatever it was line epic poem, his enormous epic poem based on these stories, um, you know, previously. Um, was Tolkien thinking that he was now going to do his own reinterpretation? There was, like we said in the last lecture, some popular awareness of this stuff, I think more then than now. Um, so that's that's a good question, but you're right that they are very elusive. They're difficult. They expect you to know the story before you read the poems. But that's kind of the way that a, a, um, a medieval Norse person or a person from the late Viking Age would have also come to these poems. And a person in, in medieval Germany, probably, too, reading the Nibelungen League. You already knew some version of these stories. The question was now, what were you going to get from this particular version that was being presented to you? Um, let me check some of the other questions we have here. Is it possible that the elements that Tolkien omitted were possibly just lost and Christopher didn't have them to publish? I'm not sure. Um, there, I think, you know, Christopher talks about a little bit about the textual history of these poems. There are a few bits of drafts and corrections. There's clearly a point later on where Tolkien went back and made a few corrections to the poems, but there's not a lot of history about how Tolkien worked on them. If there was extensive drafting and redrafting in earlier versions that where Tolkien made choices about what to include or not, um, it, we don't have them. Um, there's not a lot, I think, of textual history about it. So it, they give the impression, I think, of having been kind of composed and put down um, reasonably, reasonably quickly and completely. And I don't think Tolkien, I mean, some of the things that Tolkien omits are things that you would expect a person who knew the medieval sources well to admit. Like, um, you know, sometimes he glosses over things that he thought were pretty obviously extraneous to the story. I mean, in his notes on the poems, which are also in, in Christopher Tolkien's commentary, he makes a lot of complaints about the way Volsunga Saga did things. And, you know, he says, oh, this is, you know, terrible. It damages the story. This is obviously corrupt. So there was an extent to which he was trying to even things out and iron things out. And he leaves out a lot of obvious things that you would, like the intrusion, the pretty obvious intrusion of, you know, one of the heroes from the Helgi poems, which is coming to Volsunga Saga, leaves that out, he, you know, doesn't really need it or want it. Um, likewise, um, as we'll talk about next time, the Volsunga saga describes um, Sigurd, who eventually meeting up with Brynhild, and they have a daughter who has been inserted largely only because she's going to be told in another saga to marry um, the Viking Age hero Ragnar Lothbrok, and basically the Norwegian uh, kings like to claim descent from Sigurd through this. But it's you know it's pretty obviously a, a random insertion to the legend for you know kind of semi-political purposes and Tolkien, you know, wasn't having any of it. So I think in general, Tolkien omitted things probably because he meant to. He may have occasionally done accidental things like I, I know where there are repetitions, like he tells the story of Anvari's gold twice. Was he doing that deliberately? You know, uh, was it an accident? He accidentally told the story twice and he just forgot. I don't know. He might also be 
trying at least sometimes to imitate the kind of semi-confused nature of his sources. He says he wants to organize and unify it, but his sources aren't organized and unified to begin with. And if you want to make a Norse-style poem, sometimes they repeat each other themselves. Um, it's an interesting uh, thought. So let me go on down. Oh, uh, we have a question here about the Valar. But every time I click this button, it goes back up. So the Valar, who seem to take their common form from Vala, which is one of the forms of Volva in some versions, um, should carry staves. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, Volar is a, a, an interesting thing in in Norse. There's um, there's a whole little branch of study on the the function of and relationship of staves to um, you know, magic and prophecy and so forth. Um, was he thinking of that term when he came up with the um, name of the Vala? Possibly. Um, it's certainly, you know, the kind of thing that would have come to Tolkien's mind. Was he also thinking of, you know, the chosen thing? I think that's possibly more likely. We know that Tolkien liked the whole um, val Valen uh, relationship of Volsung to the word, uh, the Germanic word, having to do with choose and chosen. Um, you know, should the should the Valar carry staves, or were they chosen more likely? Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, there's there's probably a lot of things um, going on there. Um, Tolkien was certainly not below, um, not above, including low philological jests um, in his his fiction. But it, interestingly, if you go back and you look at the the earlier versions of the mythology, um, you know, ones from say the the twenties or thirties. When Tolkien was was working on this material, the the Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun poems are from the early 30s. If you look at his versions of the mythology from there, there is a lot of really Norse stuff um, that is pretty much excised from the later uh, version of his mythology that we are perhaps more familiar with from the Silmarillion as published in the 70s. Um, there are a lot of elements in the published Silmarillion mythology that still recall Norse things. Um, um, you know, Manwe is still very much like um, the good as you know, the more pleasant aspects of of Odin in some ways. Um, Sauron, to some extent, is like the less pleasant aspects of um, Odin. There are a lot of the other Valar who still have you know Norse echoes in them. But if you go back to the earlier versions, there's a lot. There's entire, um, you know, entire. You know, they were demigods or gods, um, essentially, in the earliest versions. Um, and there's entire, you know, gods or demigods who have been excised. There was a, you know, a, um, a female battle goddess kind of figure who has something very much like Valhalla. And um, it's, it's, all, it's all very Norse. Uh, and it gets less so. At around, I think, this time, as Tolkien was, you know, this, this experiment with Sigurd and Gudrun was, in some ways, as I think we can see, an, uh, an attempt to reconcile some aspects of, Christian mythology, which was obviously very spiritually important to Tolkien as a believing Catholic, um, but he steps away from that, um, I think, and we uh... hang on with me for a second. <laughs> it's a busy world. <laughs> um, anyway, he steps away from that, I think, um, uh, after this period. Um, but go back and look at that stuff in the in the history of Middle Earth series, and you'll you'll see a lot of it. Um, here's another question. Just re-asking this question, in case got overlooked, which I may well have done. Sorry, is the similar uh, similarity? I'm going to make this question panel bigger because it's really hard to see. Um, 
is the similarity between a sword in the tree incident and the sword in the stone story a coincidence or is there a known connection between them? Um, I think the answer to both of those questions is yes and no. Go not to the um, session um, presenter because he will answer you both yes and no. Um, I think that is this is a motif, the sword stuck in something which has to be drawn out and perhaps can only be drawn by one person. This is a motif that occurs in a lot of folklore contexts. Um, we know it in you know the Western European derived English speaking world from its appearance in Arthurian mythology because it's been played and replayed and replayed in different versions of Arthurian mythology from the medieval period up to you know Disney's Sword in the Stone in the present etc. Um, but it does appear in a lot of places and so I think we are we're best at looking at this as a use of a motif. Um, now of course the medieval versions of the Volsung legends that we have written down in the 13th century can't remember when the sword and the stone motif actually appears in Arthurian legends. Was it in Geoffrey of Monmouth? I don't actually remember. Maybe somebody can, can does remember where it first appears. But it's coming out of a, a medieval literary milieu in which possibly the Arthurian sword and the stone legend was already made. But, you know, it's a bit different. So I don't think it was, you know, lifted directly um, from Arthurian mythology. So it's not a connection in that sense. Because um, it is not quite the same thing going on with the sword in the tree in the Volsunga saga and the sword in the stone in, in Arthurian legend. But there is a sword um, of mystical origin which appears stuck into something and a the appointed or the chosen hero, Volsung, has to, uh, Volsung Sung, um, has to draw it out. So I think we're looking at a similar kind of mythological, very old legendary mythological motif uh, and it appears in this legend um, and it also appears in Arthurian legend and it appears um, pretty widely elsewhere in, in folklore as well. Um, let me keep looking at this. Uh, more of a comment here from Tony again. Um, it seems that for modern people's criticism of the use of older archetypes in Tolkien's fiction, the creation of hobbits are a very original and modern addition which is injected into this mythic background. The hobbits aren't people who seem to be nobodies who turn out to be royal or magical, they really are nobodies, but who step up and do what they have to do in order to save the world. Yeah, absolutely, Tony, that's a, that's a good point. Um, and this is probably a good point for us to, to wrap up on since we're almost out of time and I think this channel may again, may need to be used for something. But that's ultimately, I think, you know, this actually touches it, some of what I want to bring out of this, that when we look at Tolkien's ledger of Sigurd and Gudrun, we're looking at him reworking a medieval myth, in which Sigurd may have been to some extent nobody, but you know he may have also, you know, he was also essentially a prince in disguise, you know, a prince um, born into slavery, but designedly descended from the god Odin and so forth. He is the chosen one. Um, you know, we can have Mark Hamill play him in the movie, um, <laughs> maybe not quite, but that's the kind of you know that's that's very typical in you know good old you know myths and legends um they're often being told for um aristocratic audiences or with an aristocratic ideal in mind so it's entirely normal to have you know your farm boy be a prince in disguise um your dragon slayer who appears to be coming from nothing um actually being designly divinely descended from the god a god Noden and uh, a prince as well in disguise um but that's very much not the kind of way that um, a lot of modern literature goes, of course. Um, modern literature does often have people who are stories about people who are, you know, just some people. 
uh, and they're special because of whatever they do in the story. And this is where I think, you know, Tolkien moved from his focus on, say, the high cosmology and the high um, legend of his, his earlier works, and he's retelling the story of Calervo, who's not actually anybody either, just a peasant, but, you know, is a mythological legendary character. He's retelling the legend of Sigurd. Um, his earlier mythology and world building is focused on the gods and the elves and their mighty descendants and leaders and kings. And then it shifts completely in The Hobbit, which is really originally a story for his kids, um, and focuses on Every man, yes. I mean, that's Bilbo. He's us, um, or at least he's us. If he had, if we had been born in the early 20th century, and that's eventually where I think he finds the home for his ideas about world-saving heroes and magic rings that you know end up being uh, super powerful but also cursed. Um, that's where he goes. He moves out of this retelling of medieval legend with its aristocratic focus. He moves out of trying to reconcile Norse pagan myth with, you know, um, Catholic Christian myth. Um, and he goes back into a completely different story. He's reusing a lot of his elements and legends, but he's putting them into a new context, which is very much more his own context and ours. And that's that mediation that he creates between the high mythological legendary world with which he was intermittently familiar, but with which most of us are not, at least initially, um, it's that mediation that he creates between that in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, which is what I think helps make those so enduringly successful. And so here we are at um, the end of our, our time today. I think we've done pretty well. Hopefully, um, in our next session, we'll have um, time to get through the rest of the uh, legend. There's still quite a ways to go. Um, but I will see you hopefully all on Thursday for that. Um, and now I guess I can... Um, technically turn the turn the floor back over to to Nelson to wrap us up or um, to shut us down or whatever it is uh, but in any case um thank you for being here thank you for your thoughtful and insightful questions um, Kendra I still haven't found that reference but I, I will and I'll send it to you <laughs> oh here it is Thank you very much, Carl. Uh, this was a very uh, interesting and informative and entertaining session. And I think everyone's looking forward to hearing the last part of all, how all this turns out on, on Thursday. Uh, hopefully, a lot of you will, will join us again then. And if you don't, or if you missed part of this, uh, all of these should be up on YouTube uh, at some point. So, thank you all very much.